Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Naked and Inside Out. It's Janine Toro here. We're an LGBT podcast highlighting people in the community doing some incredible things with their lives and career. And we're here to share these stories to you, our listeners, to provide a source of inspiration. Today, I'd like to introduce you all to Isabel Morris. Isabel, would you like to tell us the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, I am a composer, and I like to consider myself a songwriter who performs and produces her own material. So um, I'm also a producer, and I'm into that whole technical end of things. And um, I have solo work where I play all the instruments, and then I have a few groups that I work with as well. So how did you get started in sort of this audio music career? When I was a teenager, when I was about 14 years old, my friends and I wanted to start a band, and somebody already called... Wait, when you were 14, you wanted to start a band? Or 13? 14. 14. Okay. (laughs) A terrible teenage band. A TT band. And yeah, bass, I was, you know, pretty much drew the short straw. Bass, you know, no one else wanted to play bass. So um, that Christmas, my mom got me a bass. And um, I started writing. Uh, I stole my brother's electric guitar when he wasn't using it and would start writing songs. And then eventually I got a four-track, a cassette four-track. This was back in the 90s. I started, you know, tracking stuff on my four-track, laying down bass, laying down guitar, singing, and um, just writing songs that way. Wait, did you have people in your life that were musicians? Like, how did you just... I did. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, how did you just pick that up? That doesn't seem like something that someone just picks up at such a young age. Yeah, no, not at all. Actually, um, my mother is very musical. She had a piano in the house growing up. And she would always play. And I would tinker around on that. My aunt, my Aunt Anne, who is wonderful, just a wonderful person, is also a wonderful musician and singer. And this is her nylon string acoustic guitar ah, that I have that's with cool. me today. Yeah. So, yeah, she taught me a lot about music. And my neighbor, my neighbor got me into the Beatles. He was a baby boomer. Okay. I was maybe 14 years old. And um, I was into, you know, contemporary music at the time. And my neighbor got me into the the classics, into the Beatles and traffic and all that good stuff, and taught me a little bit about songwriting and whatnot. So I was lucky to have... Yeah, like those people in your life, like to inspire what you were doing and like be like almost like a mentor, right? That's exactly what it was, especially with my neighbor, Nick Calderon. He was very much a mentor. He would give me little assignments. He would say, okay, I want you to write a song tonight. And I want you, he would give me maybe a line and say, write a song around this line. And I would, you know, go home and do that and then show him the next day. And he would, yeah, it was, it was a really nice sort of thing. Well, especially anything I feel like that's creative, right? Like it's nice having sort of a group of like-minded people that are collaborating or assisting you in whatever you're doing, right? Like it's, it really helps sort of grow. I don't know. I, I feel like it helps make something better than it would be if you just kind of centralize and focus it on yourself. It does. It does in every way. Uh, That's, I mean, collaboration is so important. Even when I made an album back in 2008 that I played all the instruments on it and I, every note of music was generated by me, even though I could have gotten a much better drummer, much better guitar player. I did it just in that way because I kind of liked that sound I kind of like the old Paul McCartney albums, like McCartney and McCartney 2, where he would just play all the instruments. So that was a total, totally solitary album, Simple Shapes and Patterns, that, you know, I played it all myself, I produced it myself, mixed it myself, 
but I relied on the input of my friends and collaborators in terms of, you know, every day I would be sending, you know, sending new mixes of the songs to my friends. I would be giving them CDs with, with the latest mixes, asking their opinions. And that feedback made it possible for me to make that album quote unquote by myself. So So how, yeah. So how do you like divide your time now? Um, it's very hard. I divide my time at the moment between doing production for other artists and, and technical stuff, mixing, stuff like that, and my own work. I, I try to build in three to four hours every day that I work on my own work. I try to basically make it something that I'm constantly building on and contributing to. But it's tough when... For like solo work, when you're the only person, it, it's really tough because you don't have anybody to bounce off of. So yeah. still, you know, when I when I have when I'm working on solo work, I mean, my partner Danielle will give me opinions. You know, my friends who I collaborate with on other projects will give me opinions, and it's it's really important to have that feedback. What do you like doing best, or do you like having sort of the variety of doing all these different things? I probably enjoy. I really enjoy playing bass. I enjoy singing. I enjoy producing. But I do like the variety of all these different things because sometimes you might not feel enthusiastic. I'll know I have to record, I have to redo a bass line for a song. I don't really feel like doing that. So I'll work on the mix for a little while instead. So that's putting on my, you know, producer hat and kind of stepping back. So like these different facets of what I do can be good to keep it interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that even just having like different interests or, you know, whether it's career or like hobbies, I think it just creatively pushes you further. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Or it like makes you look at something completely different. It does. As an, any kind of artist needs to take in the world in order to, and what, you know, whatever it is, their environment, wherever situations they put themselves in, that's all grist for the mill and it all comes out in the art. And Bob Dylan talks about that in his Chronicles memoir, how at a certain point, I think after his motorcycle accident, he realized that he had to live life more in order to be more of a creative person. Yeah, which makes absolute sense. I feel like sometimes, too, we get caught up in sort of like the day to day, right? Like we have a deadline, we have to get this out, we have to do this. And it's like we don't stop and like take a breath and be like, oh, well, wait, like, I don't know, the birds chirping. That could be like, you know, like something as simple as that. You know, like just the small little things we can take in, I think just inspire so much. Or even just taking a walk, like just simple things like, I mean, I work in an office, so it's probably different than maybe being in a studio or, you know, but like just stepping out for five minutes, I feel like I come back and I'm completely like recharged in this whole other way. So what do you do to like kind of stay inspired um, or just, or what, like what inspires you or what keeps you going and like at what you're like, what keeps the passion alive basically well i am influenced by a lot of other music i am an avid listener of music i do love working on other people's music as a producer it's just a totally different modality where i'm looking at their material and how i can help them to bring that across best so in a way even though it all falls under the general rubric of making sound and making music that inspires me in a different way you know i'll come home and then i'll work on my music, on my own material, inspired by what I just did with a client, for instance. Also, I love to travel. Me too. (laughs) 
clearly. <laughs> yes. Um, so um. that's always, as you know, it gives you a very different point of view. It looks when you when it, you you're taken out of your comfort zone. Exactly. You know. I love traveling. Um, and plus you meet so many interesting people or see so many interesting things or something like, I don't know. I, or sometimes I'll just ask people for like recommendations yeah. that I don't even, you know, like they're probably like, why is this girl talking to me? But I, I, I find it, I just, whenever I travel, maybe you're similar to this. That's why I'm bringing it up is I always want to like embrace the culture of wherever I am. Which you wouldn't do if you lived there, right? Exactly. Well, probably I mean, not because you get used to the day to day. Well, because I, I feel the same way. And when I, when, like, when we're in another city, we'll go to, you know, um, the Prado is Madrid, I think. We'll go to, like, the Prado in Madrid and we'll, we'll be like, oh, we have to go to more museums at home in New York. And it has that effect. It makes you look at the place you live differently, also. But no, in the same way, when, when, when I'm on vacation or when I'm away from home, I'm just in a totally different mode and I'll speak to people. I probably wouldn't bother speaking to otherwise I'll, you know, be open to anything. Yeah. Which is great. Do you ever like do any collaborations with musicians while you're traveling or do you ever do like some type of meetups or anything like that? I haven't yet. I would love to. What I have done is I've, I've taken an enormous amount of equipment with me on trips much to the chagrin of my partner, Danielle, (laughs) in order to facilitate, I mean, either collaborating with a local musician or sometimes holding myself up in our hotel room for a few hours and doing a little bit of recording. To so that person it, with the big, big carry-on, I'm trying so sorry. To, I try, am. Trying, trying to shut it. Why does that person have that guitar up there? Yep. <laughs> or like the snowboarders and the surfers. I'm like, I'm like, can't they check that? Like the thing's like this big, but no, that's awesome. It will, you know, and it's weird too. It's like, I was just going to say, it's almost like you can rent your own equipment wherever you go, but it's probably not the same. You yeah. know, I, it's the kind of thing I could do, but wouldn't, Yeah, <laughs> you know, I would plan to do it and probably not end up doing it. Is it something that's like super personal though? Like, I mean, like you were saying your aunt, right? Gave yeah. you the guitar and you become in tune with the instrument, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, so is that something that you really value and that like, you know, you wouldn't like just deal with just like someone else's equipment basically. Like yes and no. My, my instruments specifically, I play a viola bass, like the McCartney style, you know, viola shaped bass. In that case, yes, that's my instrument that I, my technique is based around that instrument kind of. With guitars, not as much, but mm-hmm. there is a degree of, you know, like putting on a pair of comfortable shoes when it's your instrument. You know? Well, it's interesting to me because some of the musicians I do know, it's like they will not perform without their specific instrument. Like it's like a good luck thing. I don't know. It's very personal to them. Maybe they wrote the songs on that. Yeah. Instrument. There are artists like, I remember Sonic Youth had, um, that's just back many years ago. They had a, um, a burglary, their van, a, a bunch of their equipment was stolen from their van while they were on tour. And they had certain instruments that literally could only be used for specific songs. Cause wow. they were so like a guitar, for instance, that was all beaten up and screwed up and had a specific sound to it that they lost these instruments that were necessary for the songs that involved them. So yeah, it can get, people can get pretty hardcore with that. Personally, I'm more of the mindset that it's all about the song and that if you hand me something that I can play the proper chords on, I can bring the song across in some way. Yeah. Any tool can be used to, to bring it across, you know. How do you feel after you perform? Great. I love it. It's a high. 
I was going to say the same thing because almost every podcast after I'm done, I feel like I'm like, oh my God, I could do anything. I could take over the world. Like I'm in this like delirious state, you know, into the zone. Really? And they, it, they speak about it with athletes usually, but it happens to anybody who is good at something, you know, and, and who has that je ne sais quoi, you know, it's getting into that zone and it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. It's something also that I feel like that's super soothing that I never expected. Like it's very exciting and like adrenaline rushing, but in the same way, it's kind of like, it like calm, not that it calms me, but it like, it's like this soothing feeling. It's like, Oh great. Like I'm putting something into the world that people are hearing or that people are responding to. And do you ever hear any like feedback from any of your fans or listeners or anything like that? Or if- yeah. Yeah. I have a small but dedicated following and I hear some very, um, I get some really nice press. There's one guy in particular whose name is Willard, who runs a website called Willard's, uh, called Willard's Wormholes. And he discovered my music back in 2011 or 2012. And he is just stalwart. Like anytime I release something, he'll always give it a good write-up. And yeah, he's amazing. And he's helped me kind of gain some fans from sort of the psychedelic rock demographic. And it's really, it's really um, very gratifying when you work on something, you don't know how it's going to be received, and then you put it out there, and for whatever reason, it just sort of catches on, yeah. you know? And people see things in the work that maybe weren't intended, or maybe they were intended subconsciously, and, you know, you know people are appreciating it, and that's yeah. a wonderful feeling. And then sometimes you'll work on something and you'll put it out there and, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't catch on. Or maybe two years later, I'll get an email from somebody saying, oh, this is incredible. Like, this is a, a work of art and, you know, no one listened to it when it, I put it out. So you never know. It's but. funny because it's so true. Like, you'll see, like, even with the podcast, I'll release certain episodes. I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is getting, like, so many listens and this and that. And people are responding to it or people are emailing about it. Be, this is going to be one of those episodes. Yes. Like, yes, it is. Like, listeners, pay attention. <laughs> but it's like, and then other ones, they're, they're like less or they're like just the, like, or the duration of time that they listen to it is different. So like maybe like some will listen the first day and then other episodes will be like incrementally throughout the month. Yeah. And obviously like analytics and all these fun tools that are provided to us aren't always the most accurate, especially for podcasts. But it's just interesting just to even see whether it's like social media or just people talking about it or like you're saying someone giving you a review or also helping you promote it and to just get into those other hands of people. But it's also interesting because you don't know. You never know. Yeah. Like, even one of the interviews I had um, with Brooklyn of Boys Society, she literally, like, had this idea, and she just started posting basically that idea, uh, like, a reflection of that idea on Instagram, and, like, it just blew up overnight. She's like, oh, my God, like, I didn't, like, she was just, like, I was excited, you know, and I was was hoping people would like this, but I didn't think it would just, like, happen overnight, so you kind of never know. You could never predict it. It's got to do with, I mean, part of it is what you're putting out there. Part of it is the moment, you know, just, there's that, there's that, um... There's a word for it. I mean, not parallel invention, but there's an expression for it when, or they use the word zeitgeist, you know, when something yeah. is kind of, I don't like that word, but <laughs> it, just, it sounds pretentious to me, but I just used it. Yeah, something's in the air and it catches on. Sometimes I'll know that a song is very catchy and that it's going to get, you know, that people will like it and pick it up pretty quickly. Sometimes I do work on projects that I know are not, I mean, with music, some, sometimes you'll, with film too, sometimes you'll uh, watch a movie 
and you might not get it the first time. You might enjoy it. You might not get it, but it grows on you, you know, as you watch it. And sometimes music can be like that. And sometimes my music can be like that. And I'll be aware of it. And I'm making a conscious choice to kind of make something that is deep and layered that will reveal more of itself with more listens, but it's not for some people, you know, it's yeah. more like the hardcore listeners who will sit there and listen to a self-indulgent seven minute, you know, psychedelic rock song, you know? Yeah. Um, and not necessarily like mainstream people that are listening to like something ridiculous, like Taylor Swift. No, I'm just kidding. I try to be, I try, I, I try to be, I'm like naturally a music snob. I can't help it uh-huh. because I'm a musician and I have to put myself above others. But really, like, I try not to be a music snob. I, I really try to say, like, there's no such thing as bad music. It's just all about what we like or don't like. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not going for the Taylor Swift demographic. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, I'll have a song and I'll say, all right, this is conducive to being a single. And other songs, you know, are more conducive to being album tracks. And that's always a, always a consideration. Do you have a favorite? A favorite or, of, of my your work mm-hmm. or a favorite song? Are they all like your children? So you can't. They're all my children. They are all my children. It, it is hard to choose one. There's a song called Embassy Blues that's really simple and economical. The arrangement is very economical, and I like that song a lot because it, it's hard to do that sometimes. Yeah. Less is more. Sometimes, as a producer, I'll go in and um, a client will play me a mix of a track that you know they've been working on. Maybe it'll have 80 tracks, tons of different instruments, all playing over each other. And I get a lot of joy out of going in and saying, all right, let's take this out, let's take that out, let's hear this by itself. And it's almost like sculpting in that case. Yeah. You know? But economy can be so hard in, in, in arranging music because, like, you know, in film, a lot of the time, if a scene isn't working correctly there'll be a score over it when otherwise there might not have been. They think a scene is just not paced correctly. They'll just put music over it. Some musicians who are producing themselves do this. And I've done this in in the past where you kind of crowd the arrangement because you're not fully confident in it. Hmm, That's interesting. I try to look out for that in my own work and in the work of my clients. And I try to instill a sense of economy, you know, not that that's always what you want. There's yeah. some great... I'm a big fan of Stereo Lab, and their music is like, there's so much going on. But still, every instrument has its own spot, you know? Every, they're not crowding each other out. They're all, each doing their part, so... Where can our listeners um, listen to your music? You can go to isabelmorris.net. That's I-S-O-B-E-L-M-O-R-R-I-S.net. And that will take you to all my stuff. Awesome. We're going to talk a little bit about sort of Isabella's transgendered and a lot of our listeners and even some of our podcast interviewees, we have this constant conversation about sort of understanding the transition for a transgender person. And it's interesting. The first time, at least for me, I went to this event in the city. It was a start out event and there was a guy, Thomas uh, Page McBee there. And he wrote a memoir that I can't remember the name of right now, but I will um, put it in our show notes. Uh, oh, Man Alive. It was, it was excellent. I finished the book in like two days. Man Alive? Man Alive, yeah. And it was interesting because when 
he was up there speaking. I'm like, I just assumed he was like a gay male. Like, I, you know, I had no, you know, I'm just like listening into the story. And then it was a memoir about his transition from being a female to a male. And it was so like, I was like, oh my God, like I would have never known, you know? And I think for some reason, society, even members of the LGBT community, like have a certain, I don't know, like we have to like identify, we have to label, we have to do all these things. And I probably bring this up so many times in the podcast, but you know, I think labels help us in some ways, but I also think they sort of restrict us in some ways. So you know, I would, would like to know your feelings on that and maybe just talking about, you know, your overall experience. Sure. Yeah. I had a lot of difficulty personally with the label of transgender when I was coming to terms with my own gender identity. Um, and I found that to be a useful label for myself. Eventually, I came around to that. I identify as a woman first and foremost. I am a trans woman. I think it's, as you said, it's very important that we have labels so that we can make sense of the world, but it also does kind of box us in. Yeah. What I've gotten from a lot of people who don't intend, they don't intend this to be, to be offensive in any way, but I've had people tell me basically that because I'm, I appear fairly gender normative, that I'm very much on the feminine side of things, that it's easier for them to accept me versus someone who might be more gender variant. And that's the moment at which I say, well, you know, you've learned nothing. Like this is, you know, um, this is something that is a spectrum like sexuality. It's a separate spectrum from, from sexuality, Mm -hmm. but it's a spectrum and it's not about, you know, it's not about trying to, for trans people, it's not all about trying to pass or to assimilate as, you know, from male to female or from female to male. For myself, again, I'm very much on the female side of things, but it is a spectrum. People are having trouble getting to grips with that. There is some weirdness within the LGBT community about trans people, although some of the people who helped me the most in my transition, who inspired me the most, are, you know, gay friends, um, gay men, lesbians, um, who have been incredibly supportive. But yeah, there's a gap of understanding, which I I understand that people don't understand. Like, I feel like if I were a cisgender, I would have trouble getting to grips with the concept to some degree. And um, like we were talking about before the podcast, how some people... Um, Because I'm a lesbian. So I've had people ask me this. Well, if you're transitioning from male to female, then, you know, how does that make sense if you're a lesbian? And that's when you have to say, okay, come sit down. Let's... And you break out the teaching aids, the chalkboard, and the chalk... (laughs) The chalkboard. You know... Do you bring out the anatomy charts, too, to explain I usually have those on me, Yes. Because for about six months after I came out, I was being interviewed constantly by friends. Not for podcasts. Just just, in ge- just curiosity, right? Because I'm the first trans person they, they knew, yeah. But no, that, that was the moment at which, and sometimes still, I have to explain that you know gender and sexuality are not the same thing. They're related in some ways, but they're not the same thing. And what's really important for cis people to understand about trans people is that it's not a whim 
it's not something that, I mean, just like being gay is something that you know. People struggle with it, but I've heard from a lot of gay people, I know this for myself, that like, you know. You yeah, know, or you, you feel, or something feels different, you don't know why it feels different. You compare and then you, yourself when you're younger to the other kids. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, this all makes sense now. And like, you're either like really excited about it or really terrified about it. So as a lesbian, did you ever think that all other women must be lesbians secretly? No. No? Because I've heard that before and I always kind of thought that, I always kind of thought that all women must secretly be lesbians because just from my point of view, like <laughs> when I was young, when I was a teenager as a male... I would date women and, you know, think to myself, wouldn't she rather be with a girl right now? And that's like... Wait, why do you say that? That's interesting. That's like projecting my own experience, you know, which is kind of what we all do. And I also used to think to myself that I'm sure there are so many people out there who are trans like I am who don't, you know, talk about it or who exactly. transitioned. But that's just the thing. Not to judge you, but that's what kills me. It's like, even... <laughs> The media and society, they talk about all, like, you know, gay this, gay that, LGBT community this, 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 now gay marriage, everything's fine now with the gay people, so we can push them over. Now it's like, yeah, let's so focus no on the... struggles, by yeah. the way. Because everything's perfect, yeah. and we have rights, and no one discriminates against yep. us. Whatever. Anyway. The same but, way that when Obama was elected, there was no more racism. Yeah. It's that kind of, yeah. That's what I'm saying. So, it, to me, it's so crazy that, like... First of all, I just don't understand why everyone sort of needs to, how do I say this? They need to understand. I get that people should have an understanding of something, but it's like they try so hard to understand. Yeah. Like I found when I first came out, like all my friends like didn't get it. So it was like, you know, you had to like re-explain yourself, re-explain yourself, or maybe they did get it. Or maybe I'm just being, like I always say this, or maybe it was just my perception of it, which it may have been. But it's like, why do we always have to re-explain things? And why are... It's like we're like the target and it's not necessarily in a positive light. Like, yes, I think we have a lot more rights and I'm very grateful for those rights. Right. But I also think like even with all the stuff at the trans bathrooms and just it's like people are just people. We are all made up of the same DNA, essentially. Right. It's like it doesn't matter if I like you or this person or that person. It's that I like you. And then I connect with you and there's something there. Right. So what, what kind of fascinates me is like. Other people, whether they're like non-LGBT or even people within the LGBT community, it's like, are they trying to under, are they really trying to understand it to like better the world? Or is it just this kind of like ignorant sort of attitude? You know, I think many people hover between both. Yeah. I mean, I I can say for myself, like we all, we all have our own biases and our own prism that we see the world through. And, um, no, I don't think it's, I mean, I didn't live through your experience of coming out, but from my experience, it seems like this is a fairly common thing. I think a really important thing that I was told when I first came out, a great piece of advice that someone gave me was um, a gay man who had you know, who'd <clears throat> gone through the experience of coming out to his very traditional family. He told me, you don't have to explain yourself to anybody. You should never feel like you have to explain yourself to anybody. And I appreciated that, and I kind of internalized that. And I went on to explain myself to many people, knowing that it was not my obligation. Knowing that I was doing it because these were people that were in good faith asking me something because they wanted to understand more, you know? Exactly, and I think that's the difference, right? Like, I find that 
I don't mind explaining myself, but I also tend to make people feel like what I'm doing is completely normal and they're the abnormal people. Because most of my life, I wasn't like that. Most of my life, I was the one hiding and, like, not being real with who I was. And I'm like, wait, why am I doing this? Like, they're the ones that are so uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Like, everybody else is the ones that are like, oh, this, that, blah, 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 blah. I don't understand this. But it's as if you're part of their Exactly. And I'm like, I just was like, no, 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 no. This is me. You're the ones that are weird that you can't just accept who I am. Yeah. And it took a long time to get to that place, but I'm glad I got to that place. Like you were saying, you had a really good support system. Like when you first came, like when did you come out? I came out a year, almost a year ago, because right now it's, um, we're coming towards the end of May when we're recording this. So I came out the day of the mermaid parade last year, last Wait, was it, wait did you do it on purpose? On the mermaid? <laughs> I, I did. I, it wasn't premeditated. Um, I was out to some people, but I went to the mermaid parade last year. I had been presenting. I had been on hormone replacement therapy for a while. I'd come out to some people close to me and um, I had been presenting as female. And then the day of the mermaid parade, it was myself and, um, and Danielle, my partner, and our friend Elena and um, our friend Allison and just a, a good group of people. And I was, you know, presenting as female and I was, I felt very much like one of the girls. All the women treated me like one of them. That's it amazing. Was, it was the first time in my life that I really felt that. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. And... Um, I went home that night and I actually just posted on Facebook. I did the um, same thing. That's so funny. You know why? Well, maybe this will be similar as you did it. Everyone's obsessed with Facebook for God knows why. Yeah. Two, I was like, I can just post this and be done with it. Exactly. You can just broadcast it. And be done. done. Yep. Just be done. And then if someone doesn't see it, well then I'm going to just be like, oh, you didn't know this guy died. It was totally on Facebook last month. Like. It honestly, and it was actually, I was surprised by the responses. Because I guess I feel like I've, I was never like, people weren't full of joy when you tell them that you're gay because you're quote unquote different. You know, so for me, it was like kind of the opposite effect then. Like people were like liking it and they're like, you know, go girl, like all support. And I was like, finally, like, like maybe I should have came out like 10 years ago. That's what I thought. You know, I always wonder, I'm like, would my life be different? I cannot stop wondering that. It's really tough. And as a trans person, it's also like, if I, I was on hormones on and off throughout my twenties, which I'm happy about that at least I had that progress physically, but man, if I had started at 21 and not stopped and been my authentic self, and I'm sure you can think back to moments before you came yeah. out that how different would it have been if I were out? But, but I think that, you know, what we're talking about is a really important thing for LGBT people who are struggling. Uh, I talk to a lot of trans women specifically, just talking, you know, um, who might be at a different point than I am with their transition or getting ready to transition. And I think the whole idea of, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the crazy one. You guys are the crazy one. Exactly. You have a problem with it and not feeling like you have to apologize for it and not feeling like you're obligated to explain yourself. You can do it if you want to and if you feel it's productive, but you're not obligated to explain yourself. You're not accountable to anyone when it comes to your gender identity and your sexuality, but yourself. Exactly. And that's something that's so hard to like realize, or I guess, you know, I think it's also a different time. And I keep saying this about LGBT today. It's like, yeah, they have all these new labels and things, which, you know, I have 
multiple feelings about that. I think it's great in some ways, but I also think it boxes us in some ways. But I also think that people today are get, like, mom, dad, guess what? I'm gay. Deal with it. Or guess what, mom? I'm uh, genderqueer. This is who I am. Accept me or don't accept me. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, they inspire me. Yeah. Because I'm like, this is incredible. Like, you can be who you are. Or even, like, just a support of even, like, the young trans kids. And yeah. it's just... Transitioning at, you know, when they're, when they're kids. When That's they're what I'm saying. Age. Yeah, it's but, just, but, like, the parent actually, like, understands. They're like, oh, my God. Like, you don't feel like who you are in your body. Like, they get it. Or yeah. they're or at least more open to it. And it's like, this stuff... Like, people act like this stuff just happened, like, two years ago or something. I'm like, this stuff has been going on for probably centuries. Yeah. But we just don't know. And specifically, I mean, it's been going on just with the current medical system of, you know, the the psychiatric and medical aspects of transition are fairly new in many ways as far as hormone hormone replacement therapy and, you know, uh, sex reassignment surgery. That's, you know, relatively new, but still we're, you know, 50, 60 years the thing is, though, that, um, and we don't have to get too deep in the weeds with this, um, but the, and a lot of cisgender people don't understand this because it's just not part of their experience. They have no reason to consider this or know it. So to them, it's like, what's this new transgender thing? Well, for decades, for, you know, decades and decades, transgender people were forced into a medical system that was designed to keep us invisible. They would only allow us to transition if the doctor in question, the medical professional, determined that the patient would be a quote-unquote passable female. In fact, many of the, many of the doctors who, uh, who were involved in drafting the guidelines for treatment of transgender people, <clears throat> the guidelines that we had up until maybe the mid-90s, some of these doctors are quoted as saying that they literally used this criteria for deciding whether a trans woman could attain treatment. The criteria being whether or not the doctor found himself attracted to the trans woman. I really so, wish the listeners could see my facial expressions through half of this episode. First of all, that is insane. It's insane. And who... It's so ambiguous. Yeah. Like, I could be like, oh, I would be attracted to that person. Like, who, like, what? That is yeah. insane. It's disgusting. And it's something that these researchers sort of, you know, put their biases into the guidelines for treating specifically male-to-female transgender people. There was a, um, a paraphilia... I forget exactly what it's called. Transve- uh, transvestitic, fe- uh, transvestitic fetishism. If you were a man who presented to a biological male who presented to a physician um, or a gender therapist as someone who enjoyed dressing in women's clothing, for whatever reason, Uh there was a diagnosis of transvestitic fetishism, a mental illness. Meanwhile, when women wear men's clothes, there's no uh, diagnostic term for that. There's no, like, actual, you know, sort of stigmatization of that on the same level. So it's really interesting that that's sort of the background, the institutional background against which trans people today, that's, that's kind of our, 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 our legacy. Yeah. You know? um, and, that, and it's gotten much, much better. It got better over the past two get- de- decades. It's gotten better 
over the past few years. In New York State, as of 2014, all health insurers have to cover certain things for trans patients. Which they should. Which they absolutely should, yeah. Should have happened sooner, but it's nice that it's happening. But yeah, for people who think, oh, this new thing, you know, trans people, we've been kept, we've been kept from transitioning, and we've been kept from the ones of us, the ones who have transitioned for many years were encouraged to move away from their home, to, to move to a place where no one knew them so they could start over as someone who's not trans. So we, we're going to take all the trans people and put them on an island, basically, basically and see if they yeah. fucking survive. Spread them that, out. They can't. And that, that keeps us from developing a subculture, from communicating exactly. with each other, which is why. And I love it when somebody is trans, but they don't feel the need to tell anybody. For instance, you know, I know a performer who is extremely talented and um, she won't say whether she's trans or cis. And I think that's awesome. It's it not is. anyone's obligation to, uh, to, to tell anybody that. At the same time, I do think it's also valuable that there are people who are like, I'm trans. You know, Deal this, with, is yeah, exactly. this is my experience. It kind of makes it easier. But I think it's also more eye-opening that way. Yeah. And not that the person's trying to blend in or anything, but it's great that they can, but not everyone has that luxury, right? Exactly. Yeah. So most I, people don't. Exactly. Say, yeah. And and I think I don't think everyone has to run around. Like this is what I always say. Like I don't have to like wrap myself in a gay flag and like run through the streets of New York. Okay. Like that, I don't need to do that. That's where you and I differ. Oh, so you're gonna run through the streets. That's how I got here, running through the streets. <laughs> but you get me, right? Like yeah. or I have to like tattoo something on my forehead. Like, for example, I guarantee you I'm starting a new job, okay? guarantee you unless i say like oh i'm gay or oh like i've dated women or whatever they'll immediately someone at least one person will ask me if i have a boyfriend at least one because i present as more feminine or i present like a straight female or but what defines that and like that's i mean we can go to rabbit hole here but it's it's just perceptions of people or it's like always a shock it's like oh oh great it's like that long like and i'm just like guys come on like we're all people, like, it doesn't matter if I'm gay or straight. It, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. It matters that I'm good at my job and it matters that I'm a good person. Like, yeah. So I think nowadays sometimes people make a big deal out of it for the opposite reason that they would have a decade ago because they're excited for it. I feel like straight people get very, and cis people sometimes get very, very enthusiastic about it. And it's like well-intentioned it's nice or, and it's weird too like if i tell straight people or like, i love how i always like yell at about straight people on the podcast because i was never straight mm. please anyway so because i mean most of my life i guess i was bi i mean i identified as straight but i was probably bi but yeah it, it it's funny i feel like they get excited when i tell them like i know a transgendered person or like when oh, i oh yeah people yeah, yeah and i'm like this isn't like a puppet show or like or the like even like drag queens or other gay people are like, you know, and then there's that whole stigma. Oh, I love gay men because I can shop with them. I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing this. I'm going to educate you. I have gay friends and they're awesome people. You're not going shopping with them. You're not dressing them up. This, like, you know, I make it very clear, but it's, it's, it's just really funny to me because it's like people, whether it's TV, I don't know what it is, but there's this like perception that's built in their brain. And I find myself constantly like trying to like brainwash them or like erase what they know. And replace them with, like, reality. I think to a small... Not, I shouldn't say to a small measure. I think cumulatively over time, to a large measure, just you being you accomplishes that goal. Exactly. You know what I mean? 
But yeah, it's a process. And it's a process of constantly coming out. Yeah, you know? it, it's all the time. Every, I, yeah, I, I think it's the problem of, and I think we're all guilty of this. And I'm not pointing fingers. Um, we're all guilty of this in many ways. But I think, and it's, it's confirmation. You know, we all we all suffer from confirmation bias. It's just the human condition. But a lot of that is like what you were just saying is people who are straight looking at LGBT people as part of their experience. Exactly. And it is influenced by the media. Um, the depictions of gay and lesbian people in the media have gotten a lot better over the past decade. It makes a lot of stuff from the early 2000s look dated now, you know, when you yeah. see the, you know, the stereotypes. Um, people still, like, for instance, the stereotype, which, again, sort of conflates gender expression with sexuality, the stereotype of gay men being effeminate, you know, that kind of thing. It all stems from looking at others as part of, you know, my. you're all part of my experience, so I'm going to go shopping with that gay guy. Um, exactly. You know, and people do get really excited also with, you know, with the trans thing because it is the hot new thing. Yeah, so it's and it's like, different. It's so different. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it's really not, I mean, it's... it's it's I a get, facet of humanity that's been here forever. Exactly. And, yeah. And I guess it's just it's just different to them. And I guess that's what it is. And it's good that they're open-minded and trying to understand it, which is a good thing. But sometimes I'm just like, open your eyes. I mean, you, we, we're in New York City for crying out loud. Like, you know, like, just, like, just be adaptive. Like, go with the times and, you know. But, yeah. Oh, my God. Sorry, I get so worked yeah. up about these no, things. No, and this is something that yeah. we have to deal with that, you know, people who aren't LGBT don't have to deal with in the same way. Exactly. And it does get very frustrating, and sometimes they can't possibly understand it. Yeah, or but, relate. Or relate. And I'm sure you've dealt with people who are open-minded and who will tell you how liberal they are, and then they'll say something very offensive. Oh, you yeah, know, all the time. It's, it's all about understanding that you're... That, that understanding that you can't ex- understand. Like, for me, to understand the experience of somebody who is, for instance, um, black, grows up black in America and deals with a different, a different set of experiences than I do. You know, that's something that on a basic level I try to understand, but I haven't dealt with those specific prejudices, you know? So I think it's important for me to realize that I don't understand and listen to what they're telling me about their experience, you know? And that, that's what it's all about. I, I I get frustrated now with some of my male friends who who are decent guys who don't go around catcalling women or anything like that, but they don't really understand the day-to-day experience of dealing with that. Yeah. And it's just a, there's a wide gap between knowing about something and experiencing it. Absolutely. You know? 100% agree with that. And that's where empathy comes in, though, you know? Yeah. I have one other question that may seem random. And then maybe if you still want to perform a little song for our listeners. I would love to. That would be amazing. So you guys are in store for something really exciting. So be excited. Don't talk, don't talk it up too much. <laughs> no, it's going to be the first live performance on the show. Really? So Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so don't skip it then. You have to listen. Yeah, exactly. Um, what, how did you pick your name? Isabel? Yeah. I saw it somewhere one day and I just liked it. You just, like, connected with it. I just connected with it, yeah. And I like the I-S-O, I-S-O-B-E-L spelling. Because ah. um, it's a little European. Yeah. Because, like, you're you're choosing, like, 
I guess I thought about it. It's like you're like you're starting a new life, right? Yeah. And you're picking a name for yourself, like to like represent your new journey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a profound thing. We and you know we all go through transitions, whether we're trans or whatever. I mean, everyone transitions in various ways throughout their life. But this is definitely, this has definitely been a big seismic sort of sea change in my life, and um, it is funny because. It takes a little while to get used to having a new name. Yeah, I believe it because someone you're so used to hearing someone call your name. Yeah, and you're like looking, at, you know, or even when I, like my name's Shadeen, but if I hear someone like ju- like anything with the, I'm like, all right, I'm like I'm hearing things, and they're like, not you. I'm like, all right, but yeah. you know, you just your tr- your your brain is trained to respond like that. It is. Yeah. And people who've known you for a while also, you have to be patient with you know pronouns exactly like that to a degree. I mean, you know, gently remind people and whatnot. Um, and I, I got in a whole conversation about this too. It's like you look at someone and you associate a he or she and you just, it co- just comes out of your mouth because you're like conditioned that way. Yeah. Cause I interviewed Jeffrey Marsh who, um, pronouns they and them. And I'm like, literally at the end of the episode, I called instead of they or them, I said, or his name, see, I just did it again. Je- instead of calling Jeffrey, Jeffrey. I said, hey, and I was like, oh my God. And I'm like, I'm not editing this because it just shows yep. like we're just conditioned in this way of thinking. And I can be looking at someone and like, it doesn't matter if he looks male or female, like he wants to be called this way, but it's like, we need to recondition, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's something to understand. I think it's something on my end as a trans person that, you know, I have to give understanding that that's not easy. I yeah. Yeah. When I met with the lawyer to change my name, to legally change my name, this was back last year, I introduced myself as my old male name. And I felt ridiculous, but, you know, it takes a little while for sure. And it's something that also, um, transitioning is also something that can change facets of one's personality. I'm still the same person, but like a lot of, you know, Various facets of my personality have changed all in in positive, all in better ways. Yeah. Not really all in better ways. <laughs> Mo- we'll have to take a ways. poll. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Please don't. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely an experience that I think is valuable for people in general to avail themselves of. There's a great book I'm reading right now. Could I yeah. give a little plug? Uh-huh. It's called Whipping Girl. There's also like a lot of pornography by that name, and this is not porn it's um <laughs> they'll be googling it no okay i'll link it don't worry watch the porn versions afterwards yeah but, yeah um it, it, it's called whipping girl and it is um basically about it's written by a trans woman but it's basically about femininity and how femininity is in our culture considered to be sort of uh frivolous and weak whereas masculinity is regarded as uh, virtuous and strong and serious and how that is kind of what predicates misogyny, trans misogyny. I'm making this book sound like a real blast. It, it is. No, it sounds super interesting. I'm like ready to like order it. <laughs> it's a great book. It's a little dry, but it's a great book. Yeah. And it's got, she makes a lot of great points. I'm trying to think of her name, but I guess I'll give it to you after the podcast. Yeah. So. And I can just link it. Yeah. Cool. 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 All right. We're going to just take a quick break. Um, get set up, and then we'll be back. All right. This is an old song, and it's called Tilt. One, two, one, two, three, four. Mary 
so much for being on the show you're very welcome thank you for having me yes listeners uh feel free to email us with any comments concerns inquiries at hello and naked and you can find us on twitter instagram a whole bunch of social media just go to our website naked inside out naked and inside out.com and you can link out to those there also if you like what you're hearing rate us in itunes it helps a lot and we will post all the links uh, from this episode to find Isabel's work, as well as some of the other references she made, like books and things like that. Until next time, guys. Thanks so much.